we're going to get into the scriptures. Why don't you grab your Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Nice evening. Some of you guys are outside. Uh, you know, I, I see your Wednesday night crews uh, in the backyards of people's patios gathering together. That's great stuff. And I just encourage you to keep, keep gathering, you know, that you just keep that, uh, that going. Um, the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves. And I love how Athey Creekers are being obedient and uh, putting together watch parties and um, gathering in the name. Even though it's, you know, only a smaller group, it's not our typical, you know, um, 1,000 or 1,500 Wednesday nighters here in the, in the building. But uh, I know we've got a lot more than that online right now. So um, it's really cool what the Lord's doing with that. Um, stay tuned, by the way. Um, you know, we're praying. We constantly are praying about you know, the gathering of the church and what that means. And, you know, we haven't um, landed and just said, we're going to, you know, do nothing till Kate Brown gives us permission. Don't, don't be mis mistaken. We've not, you know, just thought, well, we're, we're going to comply, comply, comply. Um, but right now we've been complying because that's what the Lord has really led us to do. And, um, you know, today she clamped down even further on the state of Oregon. Uh, if you're in a phase two, which we're not, Clackamas County is still in phase one because we've been thrown in with Multnomah County and Washington County. But so we've been in phase one forever. Uh, but you guys that are in the counties, you know, like in Southern Oregon and some of the phase two counties, you guys were able to have churches that gathered with 250 or less, which we were happy for you guys. But today she lowered that to 100 in all the phase two uh, counties. So um, the church is getting a little bit uh, frustrated, I think, um, and uh, perhaps rightfully so. Uh, we're not. We're not just gonna, you know, uh, forget and say, well, whatever. We're, we're on our knees, seeking the Lord, asking Him what He would have us to do, because that's really ultimately what matters. And so, be praying for the leadership of Athe and also all the other churches. I know this is a struggle for a lot of churches uh, to sort of comply with this. Um, by the way, there's pastors out there. Jack Hibbs, one of them. He's and people keep sending me his videos. Brett, have you heard this pastor? It's awesome. Um, the problem is, I, I, you know, Jack's great, um, and he's he's challenging. You know, and, and you know, some people are saying this is awesome. Um, he makes some leaps I'm not willing to make. For example, um, he says, um, you know, the church is being targeted, uh, and I, I know some of you guys are saying that, and I, I get what you're saying. Don't don't send me tons of letters and stuff, but. Um, I would say the church is being targeted, also the NBA and the NFL and, and, um, and county fairs, any, anybody that's group in a big group. As soon as it's just the church and we're the ones being targeted, um, when I think of being targeted, I think of a bullseye. And if she's aiming for the church to shut it down, um, then I'll be the first one to say, uh, yeah, that, 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 well, that's a foul right there. Um, but um, there's still a lot of anything that's a bigger gathering of people like Athey Creek does on a typical Sunday or Wednesday, um, those are being clamped down on now. Um, so that's, that's a leap that he makes that, you know, there's bars and there's abortion clinics and marijuana dispensaries and they're all meeting. Yeah, but there's like 10 people in those places. Um, and I, I'm against all those institutions, of course. Um, but it's, it's hardly the same thing. It's apples to oranges if you're talking about gathering in large groups. At least that's what they're saying. Uh, 
So that's one leap I'm not willing to make. Also another leap I'm not willing to make is, he's saying you churches are forsaking the gathering of yourselves. And I'm saying that's, that's also wrong. Um, Athey Creek is doing in, in some ways a gathering that is very much like the early church in the New Testament, where they gathered from house to house uh, during times of persecution. And uh, you know, we've seen some really, really good fruit from the gathering of Athey Creekers, doing watch parties and getting together, doing communion, prayer, breaking of bread, fellowship, the very things the church is supposed to be doing, and they're doing that under the covering of Athey Creek. And so we're really thrilled that you guys are up and running. We've got tons of watch groups all over the country uh, that call themselves Athey Creekers. Uh, uh, and I just love it. North Carolina, Texas, Florida, Montana, Idaho. I, like I'm hearing more and more of these uh, groups that are gathering. And um, since Athey has a fairly strong online presence, people are tapping in and, and um, and we're reaching out to them. So let us know if you're doing a watch party and man, we'd like to know just so we can be praying for you and help you in any way we can. So stay tuned, be praying. Uh, I, I, I mentioned this tonight, just so those of you that are, that are concerned that you don't think we're just uh, just going with the flow of everything. No, we're, we're praying, seeking the Lord. Right now, um, uh, we're being still. Um, we're waiting upon the Lord. And you know what happens to people that wait on the Lord? Well, we're going to read about that tonight in uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Why don't you turn there? Isaiah chapter 40. Um, I love that we're in this section of scripture because it's truly, truly glorious um, from Isaiah 40 and onward. Uh, but we're going to have fun here. A young girl who's freshly off to college uh, was there for, uh, for several months. And so she decided to write her mother and her father a letter because she needed some stuff. But here's what, here's what she wrote. Dear mom and dad, I thought I'd drop you a note and let you know what's going on with me. I've fallen in love with a guy named Blaze. <laughs> He's really a neat guy, but he quit high school a few years ago and got married. That didn't work out, so he got a divorce last year. We've been going out for several months now and we're thinking about getting married in the fall. Um, until I've decided to move into his, uh, until then, I've decided to move into his apartment. I think I might be pregnant. Um, oh yeah, I dropped out of school last week and uh, so I could get a job to support Blaze. I'm hoping I'll be able to finish college after we get married. She goes on and says, now that I have you up to speed, mom and dad, I, I need to tell you that everything I just told you is a lie and not true. But mom and dad, it is true that I got a C in French and a D in math and it's also true that I need more money. Please send $100. Love, Julie. <laughs> and so she received uh, the money shortly thereafter. Uh, brilliant. <laughs> you know, after that first part of the letter, I'm sure the parents were like, oh, yeah, a C and a, and a D, not so bad. That, that's not too bad. Um, it's funny how um, the good news looks brighter if you see it in light of really, really bad news. Um, this is so important. And man, I tell you, I hope you as Christians can pass this along because right now there's this real trend within the church in the world today to really only preach and teach the things in the Bible that suit our fancy, that tickle our itchy ears, that make us happy and comfort and feeling victorious. And so they leave out the, the blood and guts, the, the stuff that's tough, the stuff that you think, wow, God is 
man, he's full of wrath and righteousness and holiness. And, and there's a thing called hell where anyone who rejects salvation from Christ goes to hell and it's a place of eternal suffering and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. No, nobody wants to talk about that stuff anymore. They just want to talk about victor, victorious living. Man, you'll live in victory and you'll, you'll be wealthy and you'll be healthy. And, and man, there's this kind of prosperity gospel and it doesn't look like the 80s televangelist anymore. It looks like the hipster young, you know, 25 year old pastor who's um, just talking about positive, warm and fuzzy stuff and all of his, you know, dreamers and all the, you know, the, the, the people who want to dream and, and you know, the, and, entitled and, and feeling happy because they, they're going to get this and get that and, and they're going to live out their victorious life. And eh, no, what we need to do is preach the gospel and the gospel includes you're a huge honking sinner and you are depraved. Remember we talked about deprived or depraved? Remember Hezekiah said, I'm deprived of my years. Nope, he's depraved. He's a sinful, wicked person. And, and any of us, we need to remember that. Until you see your own depravity and sinful nature. Now, Brett, I think people see that enough already. You know what's interesting? I, I think that's wrong. I've, I've heard that argument. Well, people know they're bad already, so we don't need to preach that. You know, uh, our culture, our people say, I'm basically a good person. I'm okay, you're okay, it's all cool, it's good, you're, you're basically good, um, all humanity is basically good, and that's what everybody thinks. To be a true preacher of the gospel, you've got to give the bad news before I think you can really give the good news. The bad news is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, not even one. Man, even my best works are like filthy rags, the Bible says, that I can do nothing that is in my flesh. There's no good thing, the Bible says. Um, I fail, I, 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 I sin, I'm full of iniquity, and everything's naked and open before God with whom we have to do. Um, this is what the Bible teaches. Now, that's the bad news. But when you hear the good news in light of that, what you and I deserve, death and hell, remember we talked about this a couple Sundays ago, if, if you're not burning in hell for all eternity, you have a lot to be thankful for right now. At least I'm not burning in hell for eternity. Like if you can just say that uh, and have that mentality, then you're actually having more of a biblical worldview. People come up to you, oh, you're really going through a hard time. Well, at least I'm not in hell burning for all eternity because uh, anything after that's pretty much a good day. Uh, my worst day here on earth is, is gonna be the best day in hell. Um, but then you, you, you kind of think, well, Brett, that's such horrible news. But, but when you hear the good news that you're, best day here on earth is going to be your worst day in heaven. Heaven is going to be glorious. And you say, well, Brett, you already said we're unrighteous, miserable, wretch sinners. Yep. But isn't it great? Amazing grace, what we just sang about, that saved a wretch like me. I was once lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You see, the beauty of the gospel is best seen with the black backdrop of our own iniquity. When we see our depravity, our iniquity, and our sin, man, we've got this beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. And he removes our sin. And, you know, though our sins were as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Though they'll be red like crimson, they'll be white like wool. Man, the Lord takes our sin and puts them as far as the east is from the west and remembers our sins no more. The gospel. You see... The reason I get into this is because the book of Isaiah is like a miniature Bible. Remember we talked about that when we first started Isaiah? 
Um, there's 66 books in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. There's 66 books in all. You know, there's 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New. And some people say that the book of Isaiah tracks with the 66 books of the Bible with the 66 chapters of Isaiah. And I believe that you can make a very solid argument that there's this mysterious thing that the Bible does. And, and by the way, the Bible's full of mysterious things um, uh, like this, but it's amazing when you start taking each chapter of the book of Isaiah and compare it to its corresponding number of books of the Bible. And so what you would do is you see this tracking of, of the notions for every Old Testament picture, there's a New Testament truth, and you'll see that correlation. Um, and, and that's worth just doing a study in that alone, and that would take a lifetime if you wanted to. You could compare Isaiah's chapters with the books of the Bible. But on a little stepped back view, as you look at Isaiah, let's just talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you track with Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39 tracks with the Old Testament. People say, I don't like the Old Testament. Blood and guts, doom and gloom, bloodshed, warfare, slavery. You know, it's a brutal thing. Yep, it is. But that's the black backdrop that makes the New Testament shine ever so brightly. And it's just a pressure relief valve. Once you realize, man, we're, we're Old Testament. We deserve Old Testament. But then the New Testament, the new covenant through Jesus Christ is given. And it's such a bright and glorious story. So as we pick up this chapter 40, we now are diving into a whole nother second uh, ch you know, chunk of Isaiah. Now, I've mentioned this before, but I got to say it again, because you're going to get this, all you college students and people that study uh, and read, you're going to find that um, so different is Isaiah chapter 40 and onward that they ascribe it to a whole different Isaiah. It's the Deuteronomy Isaiah, you know, the second one. He's a different guy because the writing style changes. I think that that's... Um, um, jumping to conclusions. Yeah, but the writing style is different. That's one of the biggest arguments they have, by the way. But I'd say, big deal. Um, you know, if I wrote uh, a book, uh, I know myself, if I wrote a book today, one year from now, it would sound very different than what I wrote a year ago. Um, and you've got all kinds of variables, like for example, inspiration by God through the hand of Isaiah. Uh, if you believe that all scripture is God-breathed, then you can believe that Isaiah was inspired to write with one style in the first half, and he was inspired to write with a different style in the second half. So I, I don't have a problem with that at all. And my you know, most important argument, I believe, is in John chapter 12, when John the Apostle declares the both sections of Isaiah to be the same Isaiah who wrote that. That same Isaiah said, and then he quotes from both the beginning and the end of Isaiah, uh, proving that, you know, John thinks they were one guy. And I'm willing to stand with John, the apostle who hung out with Jesus. Jesus quoted from Isaiah all the time. And I'm sure that John was able to talk to uh, Jesus about Isaiah. So I, I'm going to stick with him rather than your cardigan-wearing, pipe-puffing professor uh, who says the Deuteronomy of Isaiah. Um, forget him. Uh, go with John, the apostle. You'll be on better ground. So, so all that to say, watch out for that, that uh, I, I think it's a, a pitfall to start tearing the Bible apart and its authors and stuff like that. I think you'll be wrong when you get to heaven on that one, uh, and you'll see uh, that it was one Isaiah, same Isaiah. So all that to say, chapter 40 brings with it a whole new attitude, a whole new uh, covenant, really. 
Now, if you're going to divide this little chapter, chapter 40, uh, up into three chunks, which I think we will, um, the first section, verses 1 through 9, is the first coming of Christ. That is when Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey to be, you know, yelled at, Hosanna, save now, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. You know, that was his first coming. But the, the second coming then is talked about in verses nine, uh, pardon me, 10 and 11. So one through nine, first coming. Second coming of Christ is gonna be talked about in uh, verses 10 and 11. And then in 12 through 31, all the way to the end, it's the greatness of God. So you can divide it into these sections, chapter 40. First, the first coming, one through nine. The second coming, verses 10 and 11. And the greatness of God, verses 12 through 31. Let's take a look at this first section, the first coming of Christ. It says in chapter 40, verse one, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This has a lot here. First of all, what a change of tune, comfort ye. You know, the previous Isaiah uh, model was, you know, woe unto the rebellious children of Israel. Now he's saying, comfort ye, comfort me, my people, saith the Lord. Very different. And why? It's because now we're talking about Jesus and the work of God. In fact, by the way, this idea of comfort, did you know that when you look at the Holy Trinity of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three parts of those, that, that triune being, one God, three parts, all three of them uh, are uh, synonymous with the idea of comfort. God is, in fact, a God of comfort. That's good news. Because we live in Isaiah, Hezekiah type days where there's not a lot of comfort. Are you comforted? Man, are you seeing what's going on? You know, here we are in, living in Portland and you know, our, our, our city's making national, international news every night. Uh, for, you know, 50 plus nights now, we've had violence in our streets and, you know, tear gas and the, you know, military has come to uh, try to, you know, subdue these protesters that are violent, uh, looters and what have you. And it's, it's becoming quite newsworthy and people are saying, man, what's going on with Portland? And, and if you've driven downtown Portland, which I have, good night, it looks like World War III. It's like the apocalypse or something when you drive downtown Portland. And it's, it's heartbreaking because we once kind of had a beautiful city. Um, but all that to say, you know, it makes me realize, uh, wow, that we're living in troubled days. In the last days, the Bible says perilous times will come. And it's amazing how we're seeing that up close, even locally here in our own city. Um, but this is a good word for you and me tonight. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Um, I mentioned that the, the Holy Trinity. Let me, let me show you how that works out. Jot down a few scriptures next to this in your notes, perhaps. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, um, listen to what uh, Paul told the church at Corinth about God the Father and his comfort. We'll talk about the Son and his comfort, and then the Spirit as his comfort. But God the Father, it says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So God is the God of all comfort. That's, that's what he's all into. 
It says he's the God of comfort. Now, why does he comfort us? Just to make us feel warm and fuzzy? No. It says here, he comforts us, verse 4, in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves have been comforted of God. If you are comforted by the Lord, which many of us are, I know I am, uh, I have to say, you know, there's a lot going on around the world. Am I freaking out? Nope. Um, But I have to say I'm comforted because I know the Lord. The Father gives me great comfort and I trust the Lord. I'm not freaked out. Well, what about America, Brad? America! You know what? We're citizens of heaven. And this country? Well, we're going to see what God thinks of the nations here in a few minutes. But, but I'm a citizen of heaven. I, I, I'm not, my home is not this land. I, I am a stranger in a strange land. And I'm comforted that I have the hope of the Lord and to be with the Lord. The Lord has given me comfort, and I hope he has you too. But he doesn't comfort you just for the sake of being comforted. He comforts you so that you can comfort with the comfort God's given you. That's what it says here in 1 Corinthians. Pardon me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That you are to comfort others, comfort them, which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. I hope that you're not the kind of Christian who gets the blessing of comforted, being comforted by the Lord constantly. And you just say, man, I'm, at, least I, at least I'm going to heaven. At least I don't have to worry about, you know, uh, Antifa and all the stuff going on in downtown Port. At least I'm safe because I live in, in, you know, Wilsonville or whatever. Nope. Um, you're not comforted for that reason. You're comforted so that you can comfort others. I wonder if that's something you and I could do better at, being a comforting person to those that are troubled. There's a lot of people that are very troubled these days, and you can be one who comforts them. That's why God comforts you to begin with, it says. So you got God the Father, who's very interested in your being comforted. So it says, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. But what about the comfort that comes from Christ? We'll jot down this scripture, um, the Son, Isaiah 61, 2. It says in Isaiah 61, 2, it's, um, well, let's go to verse 1. This, now, this is, by the way, this is Jesus reading this uh, in Luke chapter 4. He goes into a synagogue in Nazareth and reads this. This is great. Check this out. He reads, he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and everybody's listening to the rabbi, Jesus, in Nazareth, and they're all listening, and their eyes are fixed on him. And he starts reading this passage. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord, Jehovah, hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek, has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closes the scroll and sits down. <laughs> now this is great. And everybody freaked out. Why? Because he didn't finish the sentence. The rest of the sentence says to, to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. What in the world is Jesus doing, not finishing the sentence? It, it, it may have offended them. So their eyes were fixed on him like, what are you doing not finishing the sentence? And then Jesus looks at them knowing what was in their heart and minds. And he said, today, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your ears. What you've heard just now has been fulfilled. You see, if he kept reading, if he would have finished the sentence, he couldn't have said that. Because in his first coming, he came to set liberty of the captives, uh, loose those that were bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord. But he didn't come the first coming to bring the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all that mourn. 
That, that's the second coming. So he stops short of the, of the sentence because he wanted to be able to say, the stuff I just read to you has been fulfilled in your ears. <laughs> what a great thing. What a mystery. Those people were probably stunned thinking, what in the world's going on here? But we, in retrospect, know that Jesus was saying, part of Isaiah has been fulfilled. The rest of it's going to be fulfilled in my second coming. And what's that? That's when he brings the day of vengeance of our God. That's, that's the day of the Lord he's talking about, when Christ intervenes and returns and sets all the wrongs right and, listen, brings comfort to all that mourn. One of the things Christ is going to do in his second coming, there's going to be people who are mourning who are part of the faithful in the tribulation. But I thought we were going to be raptured before the tribulation. We are. I believe that. But there's what is called the tribulation saints. There's two people, I think, that we have to think about. God's elect, the Jews, who will be saved during the tribulation. That's part of the reason of the tribulation seven-year period is to wake up the nation of Jews to follow Jesus. But there's a second group of people that will come to a knowledge of Christ and be saved during the tribulation period. And, and they're, that's going to be brutal. If you're a Christian during that time, you're going to be sort of forced to wear a mask. I mean, pardon me, to wear a mark on your forehead. Just kidding. I should have said that. To wear a mark on your forehead or on your wrist. And, and you're going you're to be forced. You can't buy or sell unless you take that mark. And then those that refuse the mark of the beast, which are going to be believers in Christ, they're going to be beheaded for what they uh, what they stand for, if they stand for Christ. And there's going to be great mourning, even of the faithful. And, and the Lord, when he returns the second coming, he's going he's gonna to bring, you know, like it says here, he's going to bring vengeance of God, but also comfort to all that mourn. Jesus is into comforting. Now you say, okay, so we got God the Father, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, who's the God of all comfort, and he comforts us so that we can comfort others. You got Jesus who's comforting when he comes. Uh, his second coming uh, is going to be comforting those to the morn. But, but one thing Jesus said is, um, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. When Jesus came in his first, uh, first coming, he came and comforted people. There's no question of that. But then he started saying stuff like, I'm going to be leaving you. I'm going to be crucified in Jerusalem, and I'm going I'm to die and resurrect and ascend into heaven. People were saying, well, what about the comfort that you're giving us now as you're in our presence? Well, that's where we bring that third part of the Holy Trinity in. You got God the Father who's comforting. You got God the, 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 the Son, Jesus, who's going to come and bring great comfort. But in John chapter 14, you have Jesus describing to the people, uh, you know, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled, you know, about that he's going he's gonna to be taken and crucified on a cross. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in me, believe also in me, believe also uh, I've got to prepare a place for you. You know, that whole dissertation. But he goes on, listen to this. He says, and I will pray that the Father, that he will give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth. He goes on in verse 26 of John chapter 14. But the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. He's saying, man, it's all about the comforter. And then he says, peace will I give you, not as the world gives. Um, man, Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit, his name is the Comforter, capital C. So the Holy Spirit does that with us. If you feel troubled in your heart, ask the Holy Spirit to come and give you comfort um, because that's one of the things that the Lord does through the work of the Holy Spirit to bring great comfort. 
So here in our beginning of chapter 40, man, it starts off right there. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. The Lord is into speaking comfortably to his people, Jerusalem. Now, there's a phrase here that we can't just skip over that might bring confusion because you're probably hanging pretty good when it says, you know, speak comfortably to Jerusalem, cry that her warfare is accomplished. In other words, now they're gonna be done with warfare for a while, that's great. Um, but it says their iniquity is pardoned. Oh, that's great. It's always good to have your sins forgiven. But it says, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What's that all about? Jerusalem receiving double for all of her sins. Again, this is one of those idioms of the Hebrew language that we miss the meaning. Um, and there are two major schools of thought uh, that, is, um, that has happened here. Um, some people think, possibly, that the Jews, because they departed from God, worshiped idols, that they received double you know, disciplinary action from God. The um, Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Moabites, the Midianites, the uh, Ishmaelites, the flashlights, all those people, you know, that were brutal to the Jews, um, you know, that they've been beat up over the centuries. And, and maybe that's the double portion that they got before their sins were pardoned. Some people believe that, but most Hebrew scholars and rabbis wouldn't teach that. When it says here that God says, speak comfort comfortably to her, Jerusalem, their warfare is done. She receives the Lord's hand of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Um, this is an idiom of what we would say today, paid in full. Um, let me explain that. If you owed money on a house back in ancient Israel, uh, you know, you wouldn't just keep your mortgage papers in a file in your drawer in your office or your den. They actually would put it on the door. They would put a, a writing on a door saying, you owe money on this house. And then the owner of the house would actually hold a copy of that same paper. But when you paid the price in full, then the way that they would signify that there's an agreement that you finished paying off your house, they would take that pay, the, the copy that the, the, the mortgage holder is holding and nail it up against the second one and put the double uh, sort of mortgage on there. And that would be an indication, this is all paid in full. Uh, it's forgiven. Your debt is now forgiven because you've paid it in full. So um, this, this is a, the language, it's hard for us to see when it says a double portion, but the idea probably is that where um, the Jews owe, but you and I know, remember this is the New Testament portion of Isaiah, if, if you would, um, we're talking about Jesus in his first coming. And that's what Jesus did. He paid the debt for the sinner, both Old Testament and new. He paid for all sin when he died on the cross. And when he said, it is finished, that if you would, was nailing our sins to the cross. And, and um, the, word, the word is actually propitiation, if you wanna get to the doctrinal level, um, where Romans talks about he, Jesus is, the propitiation, the payment, the payment in full. Uh, of our debt. We owed a debt we could not pay, eternal death in hell. Jesus owed a debt or paid a debt he did not owe, um, but he did it for us. And because he was innocent, perfect blood, dying on the cross, his sacrifice paid for your sin and for mine. And so that's kind of the language here that's being used by this double portion when it says, um, you know, their iniquity is pardoned for she has received of the Lord's hand, 
double for all her sins. In other words, he's paid for her sins. That double paper is nailed to the door. I hope you're following with me on that. Well, it goes on and it says, verse three, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Now the word Lord there is what? Jehovah. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Now, there's a key for you and I to discern who and what this is talking about. I've already told you verses one through nine is about Jesus in his first coming. Now, uh, some of you are just taking my word for it, which you should, you should always check and see if what I'm saying is true or false. Acts 17, 11, be like the Bereans to see if what that dude is saying up there is true or false. That's what you're, you're supposed to do. But one of the things I try to do is explain why we or Bible students or Bible scholars um, determine these things is there's all kinds of clues. And the first clue that you and I should have is the voice crying in the wilderness. Who are we speaking about there? See, some of you Bible people that have read your Bible somewhat, you already know who we're talking about there because there's really one who has a voice crying in the wilderness and that's none other than J the B, John the Baptist. Um, and this is, in fact, being, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of years before John the Baptist was even born, he's being foretold here. And I can say that absolutely. Well, Brett, I don't think it's about John the Baptist. Well, then you're wrong. <laughs> well, how do you know it's about John the Baptist? There could be other voices crying in the wilderness. The reason I know this is because all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, refer to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, in the context of John the Baptist. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Let me just give you one taste of that. It's Matthew's gospel. Listen to this, chapter three, jot it down in your notes, Matthew 3, 3. So it says there, uh, Matthew writes in his gospel, he says, for this is he that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. That's the verses we're in tonight. Saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord and make his path straight. That is the same John and his raiment of camel's hair and a leather girdle around his loins and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to Jerusalem and all Judea in the, re the region and around Jordan and baptized of him, Jordan confessing their sins. This is John the Baptist and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four gospel writers say Isaiah chapter 40, verse three is talking about John the Baptist. So again, you, you don't have a good argument if you're saying it's not. So if the context is John the Baptist, verse three, then it goes into every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked will be made straight, the rough places plain, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. What's that all about? The glory of the Lord, Jehovah, will be revealed, how? Through John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus. And Jesus would be the glory of God being revealed to humanity. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The angels announced that, that Emmanuel's coming, God with us, that's what Emmanuel means. And so um, it says the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh, humanity, will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So this is Isaiah the prophet 
gazing several hundred years into the future saying there's gonna come one to prepare the way for the glory of the Lord. That's John the Baptist. Pretty cool stuff. So you got uh, comfort coming to the people. You've got the Lord pardoning sin and you got the glory of God being revealed through John the Baptist and uh, ultimately seen in Jesus Christ. Then it goes on in verse six. It says, the voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? And he says, all flesh is grass and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth because the spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass and the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord our God shall stand forever. Boy, do you ever feel frail as a human, as a person? Do you ever feel like, man, uh, life has been a vapor, life is short, and we're like grass. You know, I don't know about you guys, but you know, you mow your grass and blades just get cut and another one grows and then it mows and grows and mows and grows. And if you don't have irrigation, man, your grass is green until right about now in the summer. As we're, uh, you know, middle of July, you know, uh, the grass starts getting brown and fades. The flowers are wilting, you know. That's the imagery here that the Lord is giving us. You say, well, Brett, that's real depressing. But see, that's the thing. It's the black backdrop, again, in a microcosm of this verse. You've got the grass that fades and is mown down and the flower that fades, but, 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 the word of God uh, shall stand forever. Did you know that Peter employed this verse? Again, the book of Isaiah is quoted all throughout the, um, the uh, New Testament. Uh, listen as I read, you can jot it down. First Peter chapter one, uh, verse 23 through 25. Let me read it to you. It says, but being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. See, the grass of the field is corruptible seed planted that, that is burnt up and mown. Flowers are seeds that were planted, but they choke out and they die and wither. But it says, but being born again as Christians of uh, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Listen, and then he quotes from Isaiah, for all flesh is as grass of all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Don't you love that? The gospel of being born again, born in incorruptible seed, not corruptible seed that dies in faith. See your body, we like the grass, like the flower, we're gonna fade. Your body's gonna get older, gravity's gonna kick in, you're gonna gain weight, you're gonna get older and out of shape. And guess what, that's bad news. But you as a Christian, you're born again into incorruptible seed that you die and, and that's, that's just like coming out of your shell, this body that's dying. And when you're born again, you have eternal life to look forward to. And that's the gospel, that we're born again, it says the gospel. Now, now all that to say, Isaiah is saying the same thing, you know, and so, um, so Peter pulls from Isaiah, says here, just like the book of Isaiah, uh, tells about the, the grass and the flower that fades, but the word of God shall stand forever. What's the word of God? Well, the good news, the gospel, that's what Peter says. But notice Isaiah goes into that, the good news or the good tidings as he calls it. Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verse nine. Now, 
By the way, I told you verses one through nine is the first coming of Christ. Um, um, and so we got to kind of finish up this first coming with the good news of Jesus. Check it out. Verse nine. O Zion, that brings good tidings. Where did the good news come from? Jerusalem. Zion's the old name for Jerusalem. And um, the good news comes from where Jesus died on the cross. That's Jerusalem. So it says, good tidings come. Get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that brings good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. He's saying, man, the, the grass fades, the flower, flower withers, but the word of God remains. And the word tells us there's the gospel, the good tidings, good news. And the good news comes from Jerusalem. What is the good news? Well, I love it. You know, um, first uh, Corinthians chapter 15 spells the gospel out. The word good news, that's what gospel means. Just good news. By the way, the gospel is not good views. A lot of churches, you think they're just a bunch of good views, how you should be eating and what you should be wearing and how you should be environmentally conscious and you know, how we need to do this and that. It's, but it's not about good views, it's about good news. And the good news is this. Paul makes this perfectly clear in verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses three through four. He says, for I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas and of the 12, and after that he was seen of 500. The gospel in a nutshell, right here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses three, four, and five, is that he gave to us the gospel, the good news, according to the scriptures, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and then he rose from the grave. That's why if you wanna be a Christian, born again, you must confess this, that you believe Jesus died for your sins, was buried and rose from the grave. That's what Romans 10, verse nine and 10 teaches us. So where did he get all this? The good news, the good tidings is what Isaiah is talking about here in verse nine. Out of Zion, there's good news. That's Jesus dying on the cross, being buried and raising up from the grave. I hope you're clear on what the gospel is, because you know, I'm, I'm stunned sometimes of what people think the gospel is, that the gospel is something where we need to stop racism. That's not the gospel. We need to stop um, you know, greediness and uh, forgetting the poor. It's not the gospel. Um, th these are things the Bible tells us to be careful about and to watch out for and teach against and help people see that what is sin and what is right. But the gospel is we're sinners and we need the, the saving from these sins, and that comes through Jesus Christ, as according to the scriptures, that Christ came, died on the cross, was buried, and rose from the grave. That's the gospel. Don't be confused. Don't be duped by those that sort of make the gospel into something that it's not. You know, Paul marveled that the Galatian church was so quickly moved away from the true gospel to another one. There was a fake one going about. And he said, I marvel that you're so quickly removed from the true gospel to one that's not a gospel at all. Don't, don't be duped. Be careful, Christian. Well, verses one through nine, the first coming of Christ, the good news, the gospel, John the Baptist preparing the way, all of this comfort, all this is part of the first coming of Christ. But now verses 10 and 11, we see the second coming. It says in verse 10, behold, the Lord God. Remember that's the Lord Jehovah, God, Jehovah, uh, Lord is, um, you know, Elohim, God is Jehovah there. 
So it says, Behold, Elohim Jehovah will come with a strong hand, and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. We looked at this a bit on Sunday, talking about the Lord and what he's going to do in his name. God has a name. But here I want you to see that in his second coming, what is he going to do? He's going to come, verse 10, with a strong hand. Um, I've marked that in my Bible. What is a strong hand? Well, if your margin, if, if you read in many of your Bibles, it says he's going to come against the strong. Um, the idea is he's going to come with a strong arm against those that are strong. And that's going to be the case. The world is going to have its sights set to destroy Israel, destroy Jerusalem. I think the church will be being persecuted during the tribulation period. And the Lord's going to come with a strong arm to deal with those that are strong arming his people. And then what is he going to do? He's going to take his people and feed them like a shepherd and carry the lambs in his arm and carry them in his bosom. That's the second coming. He's going to come as a mighty warrior to protect his little lambs who are believers during the tribulation period. That's the second coming of Christ. Um, that kind of imagery is all throughout the Bible uh, as it relates to the second coming. Now notice it says here, just a freebie for you guys, in verse 10 it says, behold, his reward is with him. What does that mean? What is the reward of Christ in his second coming being with him? I think this might seem a little weird, but guess what? It's you if you're a Christian. See, I believe that we as Christians are gonna be raptured before the tribulation period comes down. We're gonna be with the Lord, seven years honeymoon in heaven with the Lord, and our, he's our bridegroom, we're the bride of Christ, the church is. Meanwhile, seven years of tribulation on this earth, we're up in heaven with the Lord, and then when Christ returns, we return with them. Read Revelation 19. It says he's gonna come with 10,000s of his saints. That is 10,000s upon 10,000s upon 10,000s. That's us, we're gonna come with the Lord. And we are his reward. Well, some reward we are, that's like the booby prize. Uh, but no, you gotta remember, we're the bride of Christ and Christ is gonna present to himself a church that is without spot or wrinkle. And we're gonna be given new bodies, we're gonna have a whole new program and we're gonna be a beautiful thing back at that point. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, so we'll be you know, transitioned from the ugliness that we are practically now to the beauty that God has before. Have you ever seen like in a movie or something where, uh, um, you know, the bride is sort of transformed? You know, um, maybe you guys saw, what was that? What was that PBS thing? Oh, it's Poldark. Remember the girl in that story? She was like this street beggar, kind of sort of homely, honestly looking girl that was in a fight on the street. And this guy walks up and he's somehow sort of taken by her, even in her sort of ugliness. But once he takes her, I forget her name, um, but suddenly she kind of transforms into this sort of beautiful bride and he ends up getting married. And it's, it, there's stories like that all throughout, you know, human stories of uh, ancient times and stuff because we always love the, the princess, you know, Cinderella who's got nothing going on and then the prince that comes. We have the Messiah, the prince, who's gonna take and um, man, uh, it's, instead of the prince, princess kissing the frog, becoming a handsome prince, Christ is gonna kiss his church and present us a glorious church without spot or without wrinkle. And we're gonna be his reward. That's what the Bible calls us. So that's who's coming here um, in verse 10. 
uh, where he's going to come with a heavy, strong hand. His arm will rule for him. Behold, his reward will be with him. That's us. We're going to return with Christ um, during that time. And then there's kind of that twofold. There's the conquering warrior, but there's also the shepherd who's going to love those that have been wronged. That's all during the second coming. And that brings us to the third and final section of this chapter. And we said the first section is the first coming of Christ, the second section, verses 10 and 11, the second coming of Christ, and verses 12 all the way to verse 31 at the end of this chapter is the greatness of God. And Isaiah is going to kind of meditate on that. Let's read. It says in verse 12, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who hath meted out heaven? Um, with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the Lord, the spirit of the Lord? Or being his counselor, who hath taught him? With whom took he counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding? This is rhetorical questions like who instructs God? The answer is no one. God knows all things. And we talked about this on Sunday. His omnipotence, his omniscience. He knows all, he's all powerful. But I'd like to take it, if you'd allow me tonight, to uh, sort of think through this a little bit with you about, um, about this measuring of stuff. Because I didn't really have time to go into this on Sunday, but why in the world would anybody want to measure anything? Measuring the sand. We talked a little bit about that, but Why? What's the big deal, Isaiah, about God measuring the universe with a span? Remember, it's from your pinky to your thumb. The span of your hand, God measures that, and he measures the dust, and he measures the waters of the earth in the palm of his hand. He measures and knows the stars by name and numbers them. Like, who cares? I'll tell you, I'll tell you why we should care. Um, and not to be overly painfully scientific, but have you ever heard of the anthropic principle. Let me tell you about the anthropic principle. The anthropic principle is based upon the idea that the universe is based on several fundamental constants of physics. These physical constants describe the way that the universe works, but what has more recently become recognized, you know, is that any minor slight variation of these constants would be the total destruction to all the earth and the cosmos. Um, now, th there's a reason this is super important for you and me today. Um, let me just, if, if you're looking this up, check this out. I'll, let me just give you a few of the ones that are constants that are really important. The gravitational coupling constant, the force of gravity that determines what stars are and how much their mass is and how they travel. There's a gravitational coupling constant. And if one of those things, those, those measurements of weight or mass uh, changes, the whole universe could collapse. Um, the strong nuclear force coupling constant, the weak nuclear force coupling constant, um, uh, the electromagnetic coupling constant, the stability of the proton, the fine structure constants, velocity of light. Like these are all scientific things of physics. Uh, like for example, the velocity of light can be expressed as a function of any of the fundamental forces of physics. Um, but even, um, you know, or even as a function of one of the fine structure constants that we're talking about. Um, therefore, if any significant change in the velocity of light, it would also affect all these other constants that I just listed, 
uh, which would then negate the possibility of life in the universe. You see, um, there's others, the distance between stars, distance between stars. Um, Stars in our galaxy are about 30 trillion miles apart from each other. If this distance were just slightly smaller, gravitational interaction among the stars would destabilize the planetary orbits. And uh, if the distance became too great, there would be insignificant concentration of heavy element debris in this universe and it would be thrown out by supernova to produce a ro- the, uh, the rocky planets that produce life forms. In other words, uh, if any of these, not only just the planets, uh, but the stars and these masses, you know, maybe you took it in science enough to know that the earth and, and the, the planets of our solar system are just the right size and distance from the sun to maintain the orbit that they possess at, the time, at this time. Um, those are those are constants. Um, and, and if anything adjusts on that, we'd be toast. If the earth were much closer to the sun, we'd burn up. If we were much further away from the sun, we'd freeze to death. Um, and, and we're talking about minute adjustments. Now, here's the thing that I find interesting. The Bible, and it's not just here in Isaiah, but all throughout the Bible, it talks about God measuring all of these things. He measured out this, the universe. This is before they knew anything about the laws of physics and, um, and uh, you know, what would happen if the moon were bigger or if the sun were smaller. The anthropic principle basically is a scientific notion that says um, if these constants were adjusted, man, life as we know it in the universe would cease to exist. Now, this explains something. I hope you guys can get it. Um, you guys might have sensed over the years that I'm a little skeptical of, um, you know, global warming. Um, and since then, they've called it climate change because now they're saying global cooling, global warming, and the fluctuation. And I understand all those things. Now, let me just say this. We're to be good stewards of the earth. The Bible teaches that. That's something you and I should do. We should just start trash out and trash the earth. Of course not. But there's this whole alarming thing, which is what everybody likes to do today is freak everybody out. You know, AOC said that the earth is going to be totally uninhabitable by 12 years, you know, and, and uh, you know, she's going to spend trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars to try to fix a, a train that goes from here to Hawaii or whatever. I, uh, some of the stuff you hear is like, what, really? Um, but all that to say, um, why are scientists, some of them, and by the way, there's really good scientists that are arguing that, you know, climate change is not, um, for, for sure, not human-induced, but a lot of legitimate scientists are saying there are cycles of climate that have happened over the millennia, you know, and, and uh, we're just seeing change that happens in cycles. Some scientists are making that argument. But biblically speaking, if you're asking a Bible guy, here's the thing. The reason climate change seems so like we're in trouble, why, why would there be scientists saying, man, we are in big trouble? We're hanging by a thread. Why are they saying that? I'll tell you why because they, the more accurate their measurements become, the more they learn how to weigh the earth and see the ozone layer and see the fragility of humanity and how vulnerable we are to any slight little movement of change, they realize, man, if we, if we let stuff change, we're in trouble. And I would say, I agree with that. That's probably true, but guess what? It's not you or me or science that's gonna keep those constants. It's the one who set the constants in place at the beginning. You know, one of the greatest arguments for 
in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth are these constants that had to be there. You see, to believe in the Big Bang, you know, this giant explosion that scattered from a tiny mass, extremely dense, you know, to what we know now as the universe, uh, the expanding universe, um, to think that it just exploded into all of this that we see, even in our own little microcosm, you know, you're watching a TV or a computer, that that's all part of an explosion that just accidentally happened. And as it turns out, it took billions and billions of years for all this uh, design and structure to happen. Um, but, but see, the Bible says, no, God measures all these little things. So when, when we talk about the earth changing temperature by a few degrees and how it's gonna destroy everything, guess what? God's the one who measured out the temperature of the earth. God's the one who allows the certain amount of water on the earth and certain amount of ice caps on the North Pole and on the South Pole. God's the one who determined how close the sun is to the earth and what our temperatures are in Hawaii versus Oregon. God is the one who sets the weight and the mass of the moon that controls our tides as well as the sun. Like God established all these constants that make science, their brains explode when they think, how are these things so exact to allow for the life of humanity or for us to know uh, anything or to be existing? How is this possible? And what they're saying is, what a coincidence, but because it's a coincidence, we're hanging by a thread and humanity's in trouble. That's what they're saying. I would say similar things. We're hanging by a thread because humanity's sinful. And the Bible says the Lord is gonna change those constants and he's gonna eventually let this earth melt with a fervent heat. And that God is the one who sets those constants, not us, you know, um, you know not drinking with straws. That's, that's not gonna change uh, the, these constants. Um, it's really kind of ridiculous. It's really ridiculous. I, I'm sorry, it just is. Well, Brett, you're not a scientist. That's true, but isn't it interesting if you, if you are truly seeker, seeking, um, you will find there's a lot of scientists that are not on board with um, the politics of um, climate change. And scientists that are strongly against it are being hassled, fired, you know, uh, marginalized and, um, and erased. So it really is a hostile environment to be an honest scientist. I think a lot of scientists are like Bible teachers, you know, the, to be an honest Bible teacher, that's, that's some dangerous territory. But to be an honest scientist today, uh, talking about anything from climate change to the coronavirus and wearing a mask, to be an honest scientist or doctor today, you will be tarred and feathered if you cross uh, those that have the money and the agenda. That's why I love the Bible. The Bible gives us these things. And I think this is such a great little tidbit that the Lord is the one who measures out the water on the earth in the hollow of his hand. He weighs the mountains. And, and he, you know, cause you might say, well, big deal. So he weighs it and knows how many sand. All those grains of sand amount to mass and weight and the size of the earth and the orbit around our sun. All that stuff had to be measured out perfectly. And guess who did that? That's God. And that's what Isaiah is saying. Well, I've already gone way too long on that one. <laughs> but that's the Lord measuring out. Um, but if you're interested, you science brains, look at the anthropic principle and see how it applies. You might get a chuckle the more you dig. It's pretty fascinating. Well, he says that the Lord measures it all out. Um, who's taught the Lord? Nobody's done that. The Lord knows all things. Well, verse 15. Then he goes from weighing out 
the you know, constants of the universe, to um, the nations themselves. What does God think of the nations? We know that he loves Israel and he cares for his people. They're God's people, the nation of the Jews. And that's a constant, by the way. He will never forsake them. Watch out for Bible teachers that say that God is done with the Jews and the church has replaced Israel. That's just wrong. God is not that kind of a being that sort of reneges on his um, promise to the Jews. Now, you and I as Christians get grafted into the vine of Israel, but what does God think of all the other nations? And, and you know, um, we're, we're, we're all, we think, a lot of us, a lot of our people in our country, that God is a good red blood in American. God bless America. God's an American. And he's probably a Republican or a Democrat, some of you might think. Uh, what does God think of the nations? Well, check this out. Isaiah lays it down for us. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket. Did you know that that phrase came from the Bible? Uh, that's the first person that used that, a drop of the bucket. It's actually a Hebrew idiom from Isaiah's time that, um, that we still use today. That's kind of amazing that that is still used. But the idea is they, they come and go, whatever. That's the idea. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of balance. Um, behold, he takes up the islands as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All the nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing. <laughs> and vanity. What does the Lord think about the nations? Uh, nothing. In fact, less than nothing. <laughs> and it's all vanity. Well, Brett, I love America. Now, what do we do with that? You might say, Brett, can I still be a patriot? Well, yes. And the reason I think a lot of us love this country is because of its founding. We, we tended to be a nation, forget what they say about all the founders were a bunch of deists. That's just not true. Um, there were a couple deists, but most of them were Bible-believing Bible Christians. They believed in Christ. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot of people that are kind of trying to say no to that, but that's just a rewriting of history. But because of the founding of this nation, there, there's been a blessing on this nation. And I think there are things when we've said, God shed his grace on thee, this nation. I think we can say that with accuracy. We've been given grace. It's amazing because while people trash this nation uh, and say our founders were a bunch of, you know, colonialists and this whole kind of new uh, tearing down of all the statues and all this stuff. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's interesting because there, there's a large group of people that seem to really hate this nation now. And I, I think that it's an interesting thing to see our nation transition from when I was growing up as a kid where there was a national love for our country, patriotism, flags flying. That was kind of the, the, the thing. But we've really turned as a nation and I, I have to kind of wrestle with, Lord, what do I do? I, part of me wants to fight for this and say, man, you should love this country. I know we have our evil history and our past and things that, but we were well on our way to fixing those problems. Isn't it interesting that the United States is still, even though a lot of the polls and the things you'll see on CNN and stuff, that our nation is number 28 and uh, you know, on this and that, safety, education, healthcare, all this stuff. But isn't it fascinating that there's still people that by the millions are trying to flood in to this country, leaving their homelands? Why? It's because this nation is still great, even with our flaws and our sins. Um, and uh, it's an amazing thing, you know. So it's hard as a Christian 
But one thing that I would caution you and me about, while we can still, you know, be thankful for this being born in, in this country, and I think we should be, we still need to remember that God counts the nations as dust. Um, we're citizens of heaven. Don't forget that. Don't be so wrapped up in the United States of America that you forget you're part of something much, 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 much greater. We're children of the kingdom of heaven, and we are those that follow God. And the United States will be a long distant memory at some point, maybe sooner than we think, uh, the way it's going. Um, God forbid, but that seems like what's happening. But man, we need to be people who say, well, the Lord says all the nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing. I think that pretty much describes it for us. Verse 18, it says, to whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him to? Is there anything you can compare God to? Then he goes on in verse 19, the workman melteth a graven image and the goldsmith spreads it over with gold and casts silver chains. He that is so impoverished hath no oblation, to cho uh, no, no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot. And he seeks to him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved or rot. Um, he's saying, what can you compare God to? Well, he's saying men try to compare God to these little gods that they make out of gold and wood and, and things that won't rot. He's, he's sort of mocking this, saying, are you kidding? You're going to make something in the likeness of God? Now, this, the Jews should have known that they should not have been doing that. Just all the way back from Exodus chapter 20, thou shalt... Uh, make not un thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down to them nor serve them, for I am the, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers upon the children. You see, one of the big ten commandments: Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Boy, think about that. You know, as I mean. Something to think about if you're uh, coming from a, you know, ultra-Orthodox uh, kind of church or Catholic church where there's images of people. The Big Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not make into thee any graven image. That's why in Athe Greek we don't have, you know, Jesus statues hanging on the cross. Because we feel like that's crossing the line, uh, trying to put God in, in sort of an image. Um, and I think that could be a real mistake. I've talked about that at length, so I'm not going to continue to beat that drum. But um, the Bible says no, and Isaiah is sort of saying, are you kidding? You're going to try to make an image of God? Verse 21, have you not known? Have you not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. Remember we talked about the word circle? It's hug in the Hebrew, or like spelled like hug phonetically. Um, and it, it could be sphere or ball. The Lord sits on the circle of the earth. Before they knew the earth was round, the Bible was calling that. Job chapter 26, verse 7 says that it's hung upon nothing. I love that. That's the Bible. So God sits on the circle of the earth and the inhabitants are as grasshoppers that stretch out the heavens as a curtain and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. Um, by the way, the math of tensor calculus, uh, which I'm not going to pretend to know anything really about that, um, I had just enough math in my schooling to learn that I am not a mathematician. But I have read about this, uh, the, the universe and how they believe it's, un, it's, it's expanding. 
but it's how it's expanding mathematically that's really interesting. And when you use tensor calculus, they, they believe that the language of the Bible is very current or modern, I should say, with the way they view the, the, the universe is expanding. Um, again, I'm way out, out of my lane, uh, out of my experts, but, but for you math people, look it up, check it out. There's some brainiac math people that are saying that the universe is being unfurled like a scroll, spread out like a curtain. This, this language sounds ancient from the Bible, but it's actually very contemporary uh, to the way math believes the universe is expanding. Kind of cool. Verse 23. Um, it says that the earth is being stretched out like a tent to dwell in. That, verse 23, brings the, the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth as vanity. Some more judges today more vain than others. <laughs> um, verse 24, yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them and they shall wither and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. Um, you know, th these are the ones that think there's something in this world, princes and judges, but they're gonna be blown away is the idea. Verse 25, to whom, be, whom will you liken me or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? You know, um, again, Isaiah is gonna spend a lot of time. There's no one like God, no one. And we're gonna see that in chapter 44 and chapter 45 and elsewhere. Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and behold who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them by all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Again, we talked at length about that on Sunday. Verse 27, why sayest thou, O Jacob, um, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord and my judgment is passed over from my God. What are they saying? They're saying, God can't see us, so we're still gonna sin. We're hidden from the Lord and, um, and God's gonna pass over them because he doesn't see them. Uh, that's just wrong. I love where David prayed in Psalm 19, 12, where he said, oh Lord, cleanse thou me of my secret faults, sins. David knew that God saw all of his secret little sins. Um, Hebrews 4, 13 says that everything's naked and open before him with whom we have to do. God sees it all, and, he's, and Isaiah is saying, oh Israel, why are you saying that you know, my way, our sin, is hid from the Lord? The answer, it's not, God sees it all. Verse 28, hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord Jehovah, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching his understanding. Man, there's a lot to meditate on that, that he never runs out of strength. He never gets tired. Um, and his understanding is um, unlimited. And then you say, well, good for him. Like we talked about on Sunday, remember? Well, good for him. The Lord's all that. Powerful, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Good for him. But that, that's good for us. Why? Verse 29, he gives power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. 
You know, the ability to calm your soul before God is one of the most difficult things I think we have to do, especially in troubling times. You know, some of you can put on a good face. Yeah, it's all good, but in your soul, are you, have you been troubled lately by the stuff we're seeing and what's going on? You know, um, I think in the Christian life, that can be really difficult to, to calm your soul. But, um, you know, our old sin nature, our old restless heart, it just stirs and we, we mull over the bad things and we become sort of locked in and, and um, sometimes we find ourselves looping our worries. Change freaks us out um, and we get all upset and worried about stuff. Um, the world is frantically in a hurry trying to move this way and that way, but a restless heart, um, I think a restless heart usually leads to a reckless life. The things that I say that's stupid, <laughs> the things that I do that I regret usually come out of a restless heart. But the believer that waits on the Lord and lets the Lord, you know, slowly but methodically cover and direct that person, man. You know, it's funny, um, some of you guys know this in certain disciplines. Um, it's funny how technique, for example, um, in motocross, um, there was a day where years ago, uh, my dad and I were on a certain track and we were the only ones there. And so it was great. We had the whole track to ourselves, but we, we decided to um, time each other's lap times. And we were there for quite a good portion of the day trying to improve our lap times. And the harder we tried, um, we saw very little improvement. And um, and I remember my dad saying, Brett, you know, you're trying so hard um, and you're working so hard. What I want you to do is, he says, I'm not gonna time the next couple laps, um, but, um, but I want you just to relax. I want you to just let the track just kind of unfold underneath you and, you know, don't try to pin it the whole time, but just kind of go a little more leisurely. And so I did. And the greatest, my dad told a fib, he actually did time me as I was relaxing and he knew, he, he recognized the problem. I was trying so hard, you know, I was breaking the, the, the traction, breaking loose and I was spinning the tire too hard and I was clearing jumps too far rather than keeping the power to the ground. Like I was trying so hard, it was slowing me down. But it was when I just kind of put it in cruise control and it hung, you know, you get this thing called forearm pump and the harder you try, man, your forearm just starts to ache and then you have to peel your fingers off the handlebars after some, some motocross laps. You motocross people, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but as I was just relaxing, I could not believe my times by a long shot, I, I was able to improve my times. And it made me learn something. Boy, there's, there's things like that across the board. I would argue that the Lord is telling us that all throughout scripture that we need to wait upon the Lord. Um, you know, we will be still and know that he is God. You know, wait upon the Lord. He will renew your strength. You'll mount up with wings like eagles. Remember eagles, flap, flap, flap. We talked about that on Sunday. Um, you'll mount up with wings like eagles, but you'll run and not grow weary. You'll walk and not faint. This is a promise of the Lord. Waiting on the Lord, being still, listening. It's this, you know, restless heart of hurry and figuring everything out and telling people what to do and social media and all the news and all the da, 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 da. It's, it's just causing people to be reckless. And I think we're losing, losing ground. Wouldn't it be something if we actually said, okay, let's just seek the Lord. Let's be still 
and know that he is the Lord. I have a hunch the church of Jesus Christ will do better as we rest and wait upon him. May the Lord give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your word to give us these reminders, um, things that are good for us to remember. And we confess, Lord, our propensity to forget. So Lord, let your word just ring in our hearts and our minds. I pray that you'd just give us understanding and application. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.